It's the summer of 1955, a time before widespread air conditioning. When you want to cool off, your options include a fan, a cool bath, or sitting on the front porch. And yet, during this summer, at least on Tuesday nights, people aren't on their front porches. They're inside, in front of their TVs, watching a new show. If you walk down a street, you can hear it through each open window. Revlon, the greatest name in cosmetics, presents the 1, 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64. Yes, the $64,000 question. Nothing quite like the $64,000 question had ever been seen before on TV. It was a quiz show that focused on people from humble origins who were passionate about certain subjects, from opera to baseball to gourmet cooking. These people would win lots of money by answering difficult questions about these subjects, and every correct answer would move them up one more level, ending at the $64,000 question. It was human drama, big payouts, and commercials for Revlon Cosmetics, all in one slick package. The contestants on the show became media celebrities in their own right. And by the end of that summer, almost everyone in America was watching the $64,000 question each week, and almost everyone knew the names of the show's most famous contestants, whose runs were stretched out over a period of weeks. What no one knew at the time was that although the $64,000 question was a quiz show, it was planned, paced, and cast like a drama. And behind the scenes, a contestant's fate was determined not by the answers he or she gave, but by a sponsor who would dump you when you were no longer useful. I'm starting to think that maybe we should do a potluck thing. Potluck, potluck. The potluck is going really great. A potluck. Seriously. Seriously. This is the Incredible Inman's Pop Culture Potluck. Welcome to the Potluck. I'm David Inman. Watch any game show on the air today, from Wheel of Fortune to Jeopardy to Family Feud, and at the end of each episode, you'll see a lot of small print proclaiming the show's integrity that no one knew questions beforehand, that no information was exchanged behind the scenes, and that any edits made to the show had no effect on the final outcome. Those rules were put in place in the late 1950s because of scandals involving two very popular and two very controlled quiz shows, the $64,000 question and 21. To end our first season, we're going to devote a podcast to each of those shows, and we begin with the $64,000 question. The show was the idea of a producer named Lou Cowan, and based on a popular radio quiz show from the 1940s called Take It or Leave It, where the top prize was $64. Cowan revived the idea in 1955 and added some zeros to the end of the prize money. But the $64,000 question added more to the format than just money. The show contained several dramatic visual elements that were created just for TV. On one side of the stage was a new IBM computer 
that would scientifically sort out questions that panelists would be asked. The machine was just about as large as the Cadillac convertibles the show would give away as consolation prizes. On the other side of the stage was Ben Fite, a vice president for Manufacturers Trust Company of New York. On each side of Fite was a uniformed guard, and on the table in front of Fite sat a box that had been locked in a safe, a box containing additional quiz questions. The centerpiece of the set was a glassed-in isolation booth. On top was the sponsor's name, Revlon, and flanking the booth's front window were two larger-than-life lipsticks looking like sleek red-tipped bullets. Contestants would step into the booth so that they would be isolated from any answers accidentally blurted out by someone in the audience and because it added to the drama. Charles Revson, the head of Revlon, began in the 1930s selling nail polish to beauty salons. He believed in spending his ad money wisely. If he was going to sponsor a show, it had to be one where you saw the Revlon logo on the screen the entire time. For years, Charles Revson had suffered from television envy, more specifically an envy of his competitor, Hazel Bishop, which sponsored NBC TV's hit show, This Is Your Life. This is your life. Television's new kind of program is brought to you every week at the same time by Hazel Bishop No Smear Lipstick, America's largest selling lipstick. On This Is Your Life, host Ralph Edwards would surprise a celebrity, someone in show business or involved in world events, by telling his or her life story, highlighted by emotional reunions with family and friends, as the celebrity sat on the Hazel Bishop stage, dotted with the Hazel Bishop logo, in between commercials for Hazel Bishop No Smear Lipstick. To Revson, ratings weren't as important as sales, and in 1953, Hazel Bishop sales reached 10 million, largely due to TV. Now, as a consolation, the $64,000 question would only cost half as much to produce per episode, and as the sole sponsor, Revlon would be featured prominently on the show, on the isolation booth, and in elaborate TV commercials staged like Hollywood musicals. The Revlon spots were done on live television, which did have its hazards. In one, a flock of live ducklings swam off camera and had to be grabbed by a quick-thinking model. In another, a model was supposed to utter the line, Soap on my face? Never. And instead, it came out, Face on my soap? Never. The first contestant on the $64,000 question is a perfect example of the kind of person the show will thrive on. Redmond O'Hanlon is a 39-year-old patrolman with the New York City Police Department, and an expert on Shakespeare. His blue-collar job belies his educational background. He has a master's degree from Fordham University. On June 7th, O'Hanlon wins $8,000. He returns on June 14th. Last week, Mr. Redmond O'Hanlon of Staten Island, New York, answered the $8,000 question. Tonight, he's back with his wife to tell us whether he will take his $8,000 and go home or leave it and try for $16,000 on his march to the $64,000 question. Well, Red, now, 
I'm going to ask you the question that you're here tonight to answer. You had a week to think it over. You talked with your wife, your family, your relatives. You uh, last year, last week, won eight thousand dollars. Tonight, you're here to tell us whether you're going to take it or leave it and try for sixteen thousand dollars. Have you arrived at an answer? Yes, I have an answer. Red, what is your answer? Uh, go ahead. You'll go ahead. All right, here is the $16,000 question. The first collected edition of Shakespeare's plays is called The First Folio. Two of Shakespeare's fellow actors, John Henning and Henry Condell, gathered the plays together and acted as editors. The other men were the actual publishers and printers. Now for $16,000, Red, I want the full name of both printers plus the exact date of the printing. For $16,000, I want the full name of both printers of the first folio plus the exact date of the printing. You have 30 seconds in which to think it over. $16,000, what is the answer to that question? There were two publishers, uh, Isaac uh, Jaggard is one, and uh, Ed uh, Blount. Blount is two. The publishers are right now. The date read. The, the date is uh, the year of 1623. You're right for $16,000! Then America waits for a week until June 21st, when O'Hanlon announces he's decided to take the 16000 and leave the show rather than try for more. Demonstrating a touch of the poet himself, O'Hanlon says, The conservatism of a father of five has overruled the egotism of the scholar. By this point, three weeks into its run, the $64,000 question wasn't just TV's number one show. It was racking up a share of the audience almost double that of its nearest competitors. Just a few weeks after O'Hanlon's departure, the show's next folk heroine is born, Catherine Kreitzer, a grandmother and clerical worker from Pennsylvania whose specialty is the Bible. Kreitzer actually stops at $32,000 on July 25th, but not before she's also become a national celebrity. Her son Ira, stationed at Loring Air Force Base in northeastern Maine, is treated like a VIP and transported to the nearest CBS affiliate so he can watch his mother on TV. After her win, Kreitzer visits the Ed Sullivan Show and reads Bible verses. Then two weeks later, another media darling reaches the climax of his story. Gino Prado, a cobbler from the Bronx, chooses opera as his category based on his lifelong love of the subject. He tells the TV audience of his musical interests, his collection of 300 opera records, and of standing in line for two hours to get standing room seats at the Metropolitan Opera. He throws kisses to the audience when he answers questions correctly. After Prado wins $32,000, All America waits a week 
to see whether he will try for $64,000. On August 9th, Prado returns to the show and reads a letter from his father in Italy. He reads it in Italian, and then he translates. His father says, stop where you are. Because all my life I take my daddy's advice, Prado tells Hal March in virtually all of America, I take it, the money. Gino Prado's decision is such big news that it makes the New York Times. Prado then visits Italy and is hailed as a hero. He's granted an audience with the Pope. And back in America, he appears on Perry Como's TV show. Prado's final show gets the highest ratings yet, 72% of the sets in use. For comparison, the final episode of Cheers in 1993 received a 64% share of sets in use. Even more impressive, however, are Revlon's sales, which rise 54% in 1955 and another 66% in 1956. And meanwhile, the sales of Revlon competitor Hazel Bishop sink like a stone. In the fall of 1955, television's most popular shows returned to the air after a summer break. But despite the reappearance of I Love Lucy and Dragnet, which are the nation's number one and two shows, the $64,000 question remains atop the ratings. But viewers are still waiting for a contestant who decides to try for the top prize. Up next is Gloria Lockerman, a 12-year-old African-American girl whose category is spelling. She wins $8,000 for spelling anti-disestablishmentarianism and leaves the show with $16,000, moving on to a guest spot with Tallulah Bankhead on Martha Ray's TV show, where both women did the unthinkable in 1955. They hugged and kissed her on the air. Norman Lear was a producer on the show. The two women hugging this little black girl, kissing her, uh, resulted in a, in a flock of letters. And we were put on notice. We, we had, this was in the years when the advertising agency controlled the shows. They, mm -hmm. they hired you, they fired you, they hired the stars. J. Walter Thompson was the agency. You don't know who the sponsor was? Uh, yeah, the sponsor was uh, was uh, a shampoo. The sponsor was the uh, uh, Revlon company, but I'm trying to remember the name of the guy because in those years, things were far more personal, and you saw him. Charles Revson. Charles Revson. And, and yeah. And, uh, and it was very upsetting to them. Then comes Myrtle Power. She's a grandmother from Georgia whose category is baseball, and she's on the show just as the playoffs are beginning. Over a period of several weeks, with her family in the audience, Mert, as Hal March calls her, wins $32,000. For that final broadcast, television sets are installed in baseball stadiums around the country. The next week, Mert says she'll take her $32,000 and bow out. But waiting in the wings, at last, is the man who will go for it all, U.S. Marine Corps Captain Richard McCutcheon, a tall, beaming leatherneck whose specialty is gourmet cooking. McCutcheon's stay on the $64,000 question results in the program's highest ratings ever, and at the beginning of the program of September 13, 1955, 
he is asked by Hal March whether he'll go for the top dollar. I've known my decision for a long time, McCutcheon says. I belong to a very proud organization, and the answer is go. The audience goes wild as McCutcheon steps into the isolation booth, and March walks over to get the question from Ben Fight. With a tremble in his voice, March reads, Identify five dishes and two wines on the now famous menu of a royal banquet given in 1939 by King George VI for French President Albert Lebrun. McCutcheon gives an incredibly detailed and complete answer, almost too perfect to be true. Charles Refson steps on camera with a check for $64,000, and the story is on the front page of the New York Times the next morning. Of course, you're not an authentic mid-century pop culture phenomenon until somebody writes a novelty song about you. And sure enough, there was one written for the TV show. $64,000 question Now you're in the isolation booth So you know you gotta tell the truth Honey, honey, it's the last plateau Do you love me? Cause I just gotta know Were all the contestants on the $64,000 question given answers beforehand? Well, it really wasn't that blatant. In so many words, Revson never told his underlings to rig the show, but he didn't have to. His desires were made crystal clear. Still, at least one contestant slipped through the system honestly, psychologist Dr. Joyce Brothers. She would later be known as a frequent guest on talk and panel shows, but at this point, she wasn't yet a household name. In fact, she just graduated from college. But she knew that the show loved contrast, so she chose boxing as her subject. Because it was a sport with comparatively few statistics, it was easier to master and memorize. Revson didn't care for Dr. Brothers and let the producers know about it. But they couldn't stump her, and she became the first woman to win $64,000 on the show. The second woman to win $64,000 was actress Barbara Feldon, later known as Agent 99 on Get Smart. She was a Broadway showgirl at the time, and she decided to memorize as much about Shakespeare as she could and chose that as her category. And I memorized a lot of really unnecessary information, really. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing would touch your soul. Dates and, you know, buildings and, oh, God, I memorized stuff. Lots of character lists and little passages and stuff. And I guess I took the test at that point. And then they put me on, and I. And the questions were very easy. And I was surprised at how easy they were. And I. And then I became sort of a popular guest, and the questions stayed easy. I mean, they. <laughs> the success of the $64,000 question inspired several imitations, and in the spring of 1956 came a $64,000 question spin off. The $64,000 challenge! The $64,000 challenge featured past winners of the question 
bringing contestants with proven popularity before the TV audience once more. It gave them a chance to win even more money by pitting them against each other in isolation booths shaped like giant chess pieces. The booths were in honor of the show's co-sponsor, Kent Cigarettes, which used a chess piece as his trademark. By July 1956, the $64,000 question is the number one show on TV, and the $64,000 challenge is second. And the staff of the $64,000 question looks even harder for unique contestants. Ten-year-old Robert Strom of the Bronx, a serious-minded young man who wears bow ties, wins $64,000 by working an extraordinarily complicated scientific equation. He does so on a piece of glass with a white marker so viewers at home can see it. Stoney Jackson, a country preacher from Tennessee, appeared on the show as an expert on great lovers, and both of them would go on to win even more money on the $64,000 challenge. Also appearing on the shows were celebrities. Jockey Billy Pearson was an art expert. Jack Benny appeared as an expert on the violin, but he answered only the first question and took the $64 and left. Young actress Patty Duke was an expert on popular music. Pearson studied for his category, but the answers were directly fed to Duke and to other celebrities, such as bandleader Xavier Cugat. Meanwhile, magazine articles were starting to ask questions about quiz shows, but no one paid much attention until the summer of 1958, when a standby contestant on the quiz show Dotto found out that another contestant was given her answers in advance. The standby contestant, Edward Hilgemeyer, doesn't go to the police. He goes to the producers of Dotto and tried to get some hush money out of them. He got $1,500 to keep quiet, but when he found out that another contestant who also knew was given $4,000, Hilgemeyer took his story to the FCC, the New York District Attorney's Office, and the New York Post. Dotto was abruptly canceled. And then a defeated contestant on another quiz show, 21, told his story to the newspapers. Within a week or so, the P. Lorillard Tobacco Company drops its sponsorship of the $64,000 challenge. Lorillard officials decide to back another kind of TV program, no more quiz shows. And audiences are getting apathetic anyway. By the end of 1958, the three best-known quiz shows, The $64,000 Question, The $64,000 Challenge, and 21, are all off the air. On September 17, 1958, a grand jury convenes in Lower Manhattan and begins listening to over 200 people who worked behind the scenes on quiz shows testify on whether they're rigged. Later, the district attorney's office will estimate that three-quarters of the 200 people lied under oath. Producers lie about orchestrating matches and rigging outcomes. Production assistants lie about feeding answers to contestants before broadcast or about tailoring questions to fit a contestant's knowledge. Some of the contestants themselves lie about getting help before going on the air. Whether an actual law was broken, however, is a question the DA's office struggles with. The shows were never listed as bona fide sporting contests, so there was no fraud, and no one was swindled out of any money. Indeed, contestants were well paid for taking a dive. There is, however, the issue of perjury, and on November 7th, the grand jury indicts Albert Friedman, 
a producer on the quiz show 21, claiming he knowingly lied when he told them that he hadn't given questions or answers to any contestants on the show. Nine months after it began, the grand jury ended its work in the summer of 1959. It prepared a report that harshly criticized the producers of the quiz shows, who rationalized that the programs were only entertainment, and skewered them for including children in their rigging. It also argued that although the practices broke no laws, the rigging violated social codes, manipulated people into lying and other deceitful behavior, and ruined the reputations of many. One person, however, isn't convinced, and that's Mitchell Schweitzer, the judge who impaneled the jury. He argues that since no laws have been broken, releasing the report, which names names and cites specific shows, would do more damage than good. In a virtually unprecedented action, Schweitzer orders the report sealed amid rumors that he's been pressured to do so by several high-powered producers of quiz shows. But the report will surface a few months later in Washington, D.C. The U.S. Congress asks for the report, and Schweitzer agrees. It will play a key role in hearings about quiz shows by the U.S. House Subcommittee on Legislative Oversight. The subcommittee calls Charles Revson of Revlon, who swears that he, quote, never imagined that the producers would tamper with the honesty of the shows, unquote. A staff member on Dotto testifies that after every show, the producers had a meeting to decide what would happen on the next show. A tic-tac-toe contestant, 16 at the time she was on the show, tells the subcommittee that the producer asked her to lie before the New York grand jury. The subcommittee also hears from the Reverend Stoney Jackson, the man whose allegations brought down the $64,000 challenge. And they also hear from a young Patty Duke, who tearfully testifies that she was fed answers on the same show. A producer for the $64,000 question talked to the subcommittee about the ups and downs of life with Revlon. One congressman asked, Would you agree that the sponsor was fully aware the program was controlled? The response, They expressed opinions, and we did our best to carry out their wishes. The highlight of the hearings was the appearance of Charles Van Doren, the most famous contestant to appear on 21. We will go into the story behind him and that show on our next podcast, which is our first season finale. Some viewers reacted angrily to the quiz show scandals, while others affected a cynical stand and said they knew it all along. One viewer wrote a poem to TV Guide. They smiled when Revson took the stand and claimed he did not know, but Revlon was the winner, as the sales reports will show. But the fact is that many other people weren't really paying much attention to the quiz show hearings. Instead, they were focused on the new TV craze. In the fall of 1959, there were 28 Western shows on the primetime schedule. Dr. Ernest Dichter was a researcher who advised ad agencies on how to reach viewers psychologically. He had his own ideas about the rise of Westerns. He thought it was connected to the quiz scandals. About Western shows, he wrote, quote, The good people are rewarded and the bad ones are punished. There are no loose ends left. The orderly completion of a Western 
gives a viewer a feeling of security that life itself cannot offer. So if the quiz show scandals reflected life's gray areas, the westerns featured moral questions played out in black and white, in more ways than one. The Incredible Inman's Pop Culture Potluck is written, researched, and narrated by me, David Inman. Thanks for listening. If you listen to us on iTunes, please consider subscribing to the show and also rating us. That helps other people find us. You can also find episodes on the Incredible Inman Facebook page or at IncredibleInman.com on the podcast page. See you later.